Zach come and worship you here together this morning. And it is our prayer that the good news of the gospel would continue to go out, that it would continue to spread, uh, even here today, and that people would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we pray these things in your awesome name. Amen. Go ahead and stand if you would, and let's sing together.
to my sister. starts off. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow seeds, or they sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield by his blessing. They multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low to oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless ways. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes them families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Lord, 
Jesus who calmed the storm. We pray. Amen.
When the American culture became more affluent in 1955, giving was still at 3.2%. However, in 2006, when Americans were over 569% richer after taxes and inflation than back in the Great Depression, Protestant giving had dropped back down to 2.6% of their income to their churches. Uh, Crotone continues that only about 5% of those who give to the church tithe or give one-tenth of their income. Uh, regardless of one's view on tithing, I think we would all have to agree that giving does tend to be a problem. And maybe if there's anybody that it's a struggle for, it's often people like us here in North America who would probably be some of the wealthiest people on the face of the earth. And of course, this is nothing new. Uh, the, the next commitment of our covenant, the last one that we're considering, is number 14, and it says this. It says, I will contribute regularly, generously, and cheerfully to the church, supporting its ministries with my money, time, and energy. I believe our sermon last week uh, on spiritual gifts spoke to how we contribute uh, of our time and of our energy together. And today as we consider the subject matter of our monetary giving to the Lord, there's really no better place for us to turn our attention to than to the Word of God. And the one to whom all things belong has spoken to us on the matter. And maybe we all need the reminder today that God loves and God blesses cheerful and joyful giving. We have passages like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, that say, Paul writes to the Corinthians that on one particular occasion when they were giving, and he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, just like a farmer who plants and plants and plants and plants, he has a significant harvest. And in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This commitment of our covenant is a biblical commitment. That's the first reality we want to consider this morning. The 14th commitment of our covenant can be substantiated by Scripture. I'm convinced that it would be helpful if we go through the scriptures this morning uh, and just try to ask a few questions, five in particular. Question number one about giving. Does God expect New Testament Christians to tithe? Have you ever wondered that? The word tithe simply means a tenth. And whether or not New Testament Christians should tithe a tenth of their income uh, is one of those matters that uh, good Christians can and disagree, can and do disagree on. And why don't we just go back to the Old Testament for a moment and look at tithing under what we might call the Old Covenant in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law. At that time, God required not one, but multiple tithes of Old Testament Israel. In fact, there were several. I think in summary, we could say that there were three main ones. Uh, the first one was the Levitical tithe, and it was a tenth, and that initially, or basically went to uh, the priests, the Levites, and, and went towards the, the temple and, and worshiped there and all those things and taking care of that tribe of Israel. It was required annually, this tenth. Second, there was another tithe that we could call the festival tithe. It was another tenth that God's people gave every single year. And actually, that portion of their income was used to celebrate the various festivals. They used it for those purposes. And then a third tithe we could call the charity tithe, or it's sometimes referred to as the welfare tithe, and that tenth was required every third year in Israel. It's somewhat difficult to actually sort through all the Old Testament tithes, and maybe you've uh, felt a little bit confused by them as you've read through your Old Testament. But it would appear that the Israelites were giving somewhere uh, on the low end, uh, between 20%, and on the high end, maybe 30% every year from specifically from the increase of the land. Many scholars believe that on average they were getting around 23.3% every year. They go, wow, like that's, that's substantial. However, I think we also want to note that Israel was what we would call a theocracy. And what that means is that the nation was ruled and governed by God. In the land of Israel, God was mediating his rule 
uh, basically through the priesthood and the temple was all connected with all of that. And in that arrangement, I think it would be fair to say that tithing was not a form of worship and it was not a form of tax. It was in a sense, almost both simultaneously. Uh, these tithes were funding the Jewish theocracy or the government and yet they were intricately tied to God's rule and, and God peop God's people as they worshipped and all those things. Well, Christ fulfilled the Old Testament covenant and he gave us the new. Uh, the tithing question significantly hinges on the relationship between the two covenants, between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant, the New Testament. And Romans 6.14 tells us this, it says that you are not under the law, you are under grace. And we ask, well, why are we not under the Old Testament law? And it's really because of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's trying to help us understand that. Don't just think of Old Testament law and all that, and, and it's just, oh yeah, we're done with that, and now it's just this new thing. He said, I didn't come to abolish it. I have come to fulfill those things. And, and basically, the idea of the one flowing into the other. The Old Testament law pointed to Christ, and he has come. And he has done something. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. The priesthood, the temple, the festivals, everything that these tithes were tied to essentially are no more. At least in this sense, that Jesus Christ is the final perfect high priest. The people of Christ are his temple. And the festivals, festivals like Passover and other uh, festivals that the Jewish people celebrated together have reached their culmination in Christ, our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. So, uh, back to our question, are we required to tithe in the Old Testament sense? And I would argue that the simple answer is no. The tithe was part of the Old Testament Mosaic covenant or law. And we are not under that covenant any longer. Christ has given us a better covenant. There was a woman by the name of Loretta who was shocked when she received a letter back in 2005 revealing that her church membership had been revoked from her church for failing to tithe. And when she had joined the church, she had agreed to pay 10% of her income to the church, but from January to July of that year where her membership was revoked, she unexpectedly found herself in and out of the hospital something like 15 times. And she was a senior living on, in her country, what was, was basically um, a pension of some kind. And her check every month came. That check was $592, and she was unable to pay her $60 monthly tithe with her mounting medical bills. And the letter from the pastor of her church clarified that they would allow her to attend the church, but not permit her to be a member, provided that she was not tithing. Well, it seems like there were a few misunderstandings there, probably on, on multiple levels. And I think we want to make sure we, we have a sense of what's going on here between the, these covenants at, at a very high level. Some people, as they speak about the tithe, they go, well, okay, well, there was the Mosaic covenant. But even prior to that, in Scripture, you see the tithe. <coughs> there are those who would argue that the tithe was established prior to the Mosaic Covenant, and therefore it continues, even after the Mosaic Covenant. So, for example, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of war. Uh, Jacob, in Genesis, promised God at Bethel that, that he would give God a tenth. It's hard, though, to argue from those voluntary, one-time giving events that the tithe was taught or established by God prior to the law as something that should continue on in perpetuity. Now, others would turn to the New Testament and point to passages like Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, and Luke chapter 11, verse 42, where Jesus told the Pharisees that it was right for them to tithe. But remember, they were still under the Old Covenant at the time. In fact, we can think of other things that Jesus said that would reflect that same dynamic. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, when you go and you offer your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, 
You've gone to make your animal sacrifice, perhaps at Jerusalem to the Lord. Well, leave it there and go all the way back to whatever town or jurisdiction you came from and make things right with your brother and then come back and offer your gift on the altar. We have to remember who Jesus was talking to at the time. People still under the old covenant. It's a big picture. Are you required to tithe? I would say no. And many of us have grown up with that tradition, and I, I certainly did in my upbringing and church background and, and home. And, and I actually think that that was, that was extremely helpful for me because from an early age I learned that whatever God gives me, a portion of this should certainly go back to the Lord. And just establishing those patterns so, so, so helpful on the one hand. But I think it would be hard to argue that we are required to tithe in the Old Testament sense. It's interesting that one of the very first things that we see New Covenant people of Christ doing in Scripture is giving. The New Covenant work of Christ radically influenced the early uh, Christian's perspective on their resources and on their possessions. And so uh, right away after Christ is uh, risen from the grave and he's ascended up into heaven, we find ourselves in the book of Acts chapter 4. I mean, the earliest chapters of the church. And we have verses like 34 and 35 of that chapter that say, As many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Why? For the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of God's people. It's really only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can produce that kind of voluntary action in people. New Covenant Christians realize that you cannot give the one who gave himself. Just a clarification on the book of Acts there, I would argue that what we see going on in that book is not necessarily prescription for us today, that what we see the, the Christians doing there, that's prescribed for us. Go do exactly what they were doing. But instead, that it is a description for us of what God's new covenant people are like in every age. They are a giving people who reflect the giving sacrifice, the voluntary sacrifice of their Lord. Another question about giving, number two, how should our giving be characterized? If this is what New Covenant people do, well, how do we do it? What should it look like? And uh, you may be there in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. What if we just go to the New Covenant? What if we go to the New Testament and just look for examples of how God's people gave? Whatever they may have been giving to. Whether it was gospel events or the needs of other Christians, how did they give? How were they admonished? I'm going to give you eight biblical descriptions of what our giving should like, look like. And I just want to ask you to remember as I do that, that giving in the New Testament is always voluntary. It's reflective of Christ's own sacrifice and giving that was voluntary. In the New Testament, giving is assumed and it's even commanded. But it's never pulled out. It's never coerced out. It's never manipulated out. It's never guilted out of people by law. If you're a new covenant Christian, your giving should be, I think to, to start it all off, it should be relationship based. And I want you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 to 5. And let's just start looking at this particular passage. Paul writes that we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And Paul is going to describe how the, the Macedonian Christians gave at one particular time. He says in verse 2, For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by will of God, to us. We'll go back and look at some of those verses, but there in verse 5, it indicates that the Corinthians gave of themselves first to the Lord, before they actually were, were, were giving of their resources. 
And I think that's crucial and foundational for all of us, that new covenant giving rests on and flows from a relationship, first and foremost, with the Lord. And anything that, that we do with our resources, it should flow forward from that, that we have a relationship with Christ. We give ourselves first to Him. So relationship-based is one way that we could describe what our giving should be like. Second, it should be grace-based. If you look at verses 8 and 9 of this same chapter, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And Paul is connecting their giving to Christ's giving of himself. Giving is a response to the grace of God shown to believers. And those who have been shown the grace of God in Christ graciously give in response to that. Our Lord has graciously given to us, and that's what we do. Third, it should be love-based. Giving is a demonstration of Christian love. In verse 8, Paul mentions the Corinthians' love as one of the pillars undergirding their giving. Love for God, love for their brothers. And four, I think we could say that it should be heart decided. Giving should be based on the amount decided in your heart. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart. In his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So your giving should be heart decided. Fifth, we, I think we could say that it should be in, income based and proportionate to that. The exact amount that you give should be proportionate and a reflection of your income and of your means. And we see this in several verses. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, if you look back at that verse, it says, For they gave according to what? Well, according to their means. Paul says, And I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Chapter 8, verse 12 says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has. Not according to what he does not have. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, we have these words. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So Paul is, as he speaks to the Corinthians, he's saying your giving should in some way reflect your income. Sixth, we could say that it, it is needs-based. God wants his people to meet the needs of the hour. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, use this language of need. Paul writes, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. I mean, you've got one church, and churches giving to other very, very needy saints. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their what? Their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. You see God's people giving to the need of the hour, whatever that was. The same thing in chapter 9, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the need of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So Paul's talking about needs-based giving. And seven, they should be cheerful and joyful. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, these famous words that God loves a cheerful giver. Your giving should be cheerful and joyful, not visible and guilt-based and coerced. That is not what the New Testament puts before us. And number 8, sacrificial and generous. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, Paul puts this Macedonian model in front of the Corinthians. And he says, here's what your brother in Macedonia was. Verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And then he writes this, and beyond their means. And again, it's not coerced. This was voluntary of their own accord. In fact, the model that Paul puts forth are people here who, who get this so much that they're begging Paul, can we please take part in this? These are our brothers in Christ. And these, there are gospel purposes here. And so they are sacrificially and generously given. And, and Paul does highlight the idea that the goal is not that you would give to the point where now an offering is taken for you. 
Um, he's, he's not admonishing that, but he is pointing us towards sacrificial and generous giving. And when one basis is giving on the amount of grace that God has given him, you need to think about that. If, if my giving is based on the giving of Christ, hmm. if my giving is reflective, reflective of the giving of Christ, then what will it be? Well, it, it won't be stingy. Because Christ was certainly not that in the giving of himself. A third question about giving. What amount, then, should the New Testament Christian give? 5%? 10%? 20%? 50 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%? 50%
uh, I would argue, by means of your local church. Why? Well, very broadly speaking, because of what the church is and what the church does. 1 Timothy 3.15 calls the church uh, the church of the living God and then the pillar or buttress of something. The pillar or buttress of the truth. God's plan is that his church and all local manifestations of it would hold up and support the truth, namely the truth of the gospel. The church that supports the truth of the gospel is worth supporting. The church that preaches God's word faithfully is worth supporting. As you give to your local church, that money goes towards funding things like a place to meet where uh, local churches can gather, whether it's a rental, like our situation here, or whether it's a, a church that has their own building. Giving to the local church also supports uh, the financial support of missionaries. I just mentioned Herb Hunter. Uh, a portion of everything that's given ends up going to South Africa, in our case here. The financial support of pastors and the preaching of the word. Um, in fact, God actually commands churches to financially support their pastors, not necessarily all of them, but at least some of them, or be willing to do that. One passage of particular interest on that specific matter is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. And that passage there says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And Paul's just used the honor language in the passage right above it to talk about uh, the church financially taking care of a, a certain widow. So in some sense, he's using that word financially, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, it's interesting, I think, in that passage that in some ways it reflects this, this reality. The church's willingness to pay um, some of their pastors, namely those who labor in preaching and teaching, what this, those, that verse references, <coughs> in many senses is a, a reflection of their love for that very thing, the preached word. A church is saying we love and value the accurate, faithful, expositional preaching of God's word so much that we want to make it possible for at least one, if not more of our elders, to give substantial time in his week to that endeavor. Paul, Paul's making some connection there between what we do with our resources and the word of God. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, God's truth, the truth in his word, and the truth of the gospel. We should give to God by means of the local church and second to God by means of the needy. Whether it's in Acts or uh, the letters to the Corinthians, we see God's people meeting the needs of each other. You just see that again and again and again in Scripture. At times that will happen through the body collectively. An entire church will do something financially for somebody or another church or God's people around the world. And at other times it will happen through us as individuals. One Christian seeing the need of another brother and sister in Christ and going, you know what, I, I can meet that need. I can help. Are you ready and willing to meet needs like that as you see them? And, and you can give to other causes and other means of gospel advance. I would argue from scripture, though, that your local church and fellow believers should be top on the list. One more question. How is it exactly that God blesses New the New Testament Christian as he gives? God makes it clear that he blesses generosity. Now, I mean, just to be clear, I'm not going to, for a moment, stand up here and preach to you a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You just keep giving. And God's just going to open the coffers of heaven and I'm not going to do that. Those teachings, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, those teachings are unbiblical. If you are generous, will God put greater wealth into your hands? Well, that it would certainly not be surprising if God did that, because God often entrusts faithful stewards with even greater stewardship responsibility. But that's not a guarantee. So how does God bless generosity? Well, God blesses generosity in ways like what we see back in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. If you just look at that verse, he speaks of increasing the harvest of your righteousness. That's, 
I mean, we don't have the time to work in great detail through these two chapters, but increasing the harvest of your what? Your righteousness? In short, God often blesses in spiritual and eternal ways. He often will do things that increase your joy. Uh, give a harvest of eternal fruit. Those sorts of things. My wife and I have bank accounts in two countries. It's actually a little bit annoying, but the, the reason that we do that is because we actually complete our taxes in two different countries, and so sometimes we need to have the ability to move money between them. And from time to time as we do that, um, we'll be looking at the exchange rate between the two countries. And many of you have probably done this as you travel from, uh, maybe you've traveled out of country, and you're like, hey, I'm going to go to this country, and I want to get the most out of my money when I transfer it to a different currency. And there's a bit of a trick to that. Uh, you want to exchange your money when the exchange rate is in your favor, when it's good, but the problem is it's always moving. And one day it's better than the next. One of the things that I love as we look at Scripture is that the exchange rate is always good from earth to heaven. When you and I transfer money from the earthly to the heavenly, it's always a good trade. Always. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, I have had many things in my hands that I lost. And the things that I place in the hands of God, I still possess. And in fact, not just now, but eternal. God loves and blesses cheerful and joyful giving. The second reality about this commitment in our covenant on this matter is that it is a threatened commitment. The Bible speaks to many pitfalls and dangers with regard to how we view and manage the money that he's placed into our hands. The commitment we're considering today is often threatened by our love of money, for example. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 mentions that. And that verse, just to be very clear, does not condemn having money or even great amounts of it. If, if, if you have a lot of wealth, that's all. it's not like, oh, I should feel terrible. No. What that verse is condemning is the love of money, essentially making an idol out of it, putting it in a place where it doesn't belong in your life and heart. God says that doing that is a root of all kinds of evil. Sometimes we love our money way too much, and we look to it as a God. We look to it to do for us what only God can do for us, and we bow down to it, and we ask it, do this for me, but only God could ever do that. It's threatened at other times by setting our hope and riches. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, that verse says this. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. A verse like that, I think, also speaks to the fact that this commitment could be threatened by our fears. The Bible commends saving as a safeguard against many things. I don't think you could read the book of Proverbs without walking away with the idea that saving is good. Wise Christians save in contrast to consuming everything, Proverbs 21, verse 20. But if we take that too far when we save and we hoard and we stockpile our resources ultimately out of fear in a way that does not demonstrate trust in God or a recognition, as Proverbs 10, 22 says, that the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. I think it's also threatened by managing our resources poorly. The Bible speaks to how we use and manage our resources, all of them, really. And if you manage your resources poorly, and there's so many ways to do that, but uh, maybe by making poor financial choices, uh, living beyond your means, or drowning in debt, or just simply even being too lazy to work, as much as you must, might want to be generous, you end up finding yourself in a position where it's really hard to do. And if that's you, you find yourself in a situation where you're managing your resources poorly. Uh, you may not know what to do. And maybe just one step that you could take. We offer a course here during table time about managing your finances God's way. And it's not just about giving. It's, it's about managing all your finances God's way. And God cares about all of that. And it's not just for those struggling or having a hard time with their finances, but any Christian. How do I manage my money God's way according to biblical principles? Sign up for that course. You might find it helpful. God loves and blesses cheerful and joyful giving. It will always be threatening our lives to many things. And a third reality, it's a practical commitment. What do we do about this practically? 
Well, I think for starters, it, so much of it is how we think. Remember that everything belongs to God. So many people get that basic premise wrong. And, and, and the Old Testament, Psalm 24, verse 1, it reminds us that the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You don't actually own anything. <laughs> well, yes, I do. I have a car right out here and a house. And you don't own anything. God is the owner. And according to Scripture, He owns everything, and, and you and I are stewards. So along with that, you want to surrender everything to God. God, I recognize that everything is yours. Help me to see that, and help me these resources that you have put into my hands Please help me to see that and hold these resources loosely and steward these things for your eternal purposes. Managing your resources well with wisdom and prudence. Um, uh, just many biblical principles for how you manage all your wealth. And when it comes to generosity, there is something to be said for a regular systematic plan. Paul was collecting a massive offering from several churches around the ancient world to meet the needs of some very, very poor, impoverished believers who were in dire straits. And as he did that, uh, he told the Corinthians, essentially, before long, I'm going to show up in towns where you guys are at to receive your portion of this offering, and you need to be ready. And notice the practical wisdom that Paul puts on the table in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, if you want to turn back there. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, he's, he's trying to prep the Corinthian church for this offering for these needy, needy brothers and sisters in Christ. And he writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Again, there's something for, to be said for a regular systematic plan. And that's how Paul's encouraging these people. Do you have a plan to be generous? Do you have a generosity plan for giving to your church and giving to the needy? For many of us, that's going to look like uh, budgeting. For example, to be generous. Here's what comes in every month, and here's the budget based on that. Budgeting to be generous, and each time we receive our paycheck, maybe having a definite plan for what portion we're going to give, because it's a top priority. God loves and blesses cheerful and joyful giving. It's very, a very, very practical commitment. And I think actually what I just spoke about is actually, what, for, for many of us who maybe grew up in a context where a tithe was uh, specifically taught, even if maybe that's hard to support uh, from moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, one of the things that it did do is capture this idea. That out of everything that comes in, I need to have a plan to be generous. And it's going to look specifically like this. And I think that's something that all of us want to make sure as, as New Testament believers that we catch. This commitment, um, it's also a grace-required commitment. And along similar lines, it's a gospel-driven commitment. We get as people of the New Covenant who have been graced by God and the generous and sacrificial giving of his son for our sins on the cross. What did God give? He gave us his only begotten son. And salvation itself, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is a free gift. And so, yes, very big picture. Giving is at the heart of the gospel. And so may those of us who have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us, may we reflect our Lord. Giving is at the heart. God loves and blesses cheerful and joyful giving. It's a grace-required, gospel-driven privilege. I want you to turn, as we wrap up here this morning, to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. I've been reading in 1 Timothy, I think in the last five weeks or so, and Paul is writing to this young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus. And what struck me as I tried to read through this book again and again and again is just this repeated language that kind of comes in this vein. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't be timid. Timothy, don't be afraid to say what needs said. Timothy, command and teach these things. Command them. 
Don't merely suggest this, Timothy. Charge God's people with these things because it is the truth of God. And as Paul nears the conclusion of his letter there in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he says this to Timothy, who is pastoring there at the Ephesian church. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. And I stand here this morning with, frankly, a duty from heaven that is the same duty that, that Timothy had. To charge those of you who are rich in this present age, which is probably the vast majority of the people sitting here today. We live in North America at a period in history of great wealth. And so on the basis of God's word, I want to make this charge first and foremost to myself and then to you. I charge you, based on, on God's word here, don't be arrogant or think highly of yourself because you are wealthy here. Don't place your confidence and hope in the uncertainty of riches that could fly away tomorrow. Rather, put your confidence and hope in God and it is He who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He is the one that puts everything into our hands for our enjoyment. And do what is good. And labor to be rich in good works. Be generous. Be willing and ready to share. And store up treasure for yourself for the age to come. So that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me at this time? You're going to have a moment or two there in your seat just to pray to the Lord and respond to Him however He may be leading you. And I just want to encourage you to do that. And then here in a moment, I will pray as well. You go ahead and speak to the Lord however He may be directing.